I want to welcome uh, especially our visitors. We're so glad that you're here. I'm Pastor Michael, and um, we're going to begin a new sermon series that will take us to the end of the year, and we're going to look at the life of Elijah and Elisha. And uh, Elijah and Elisha, they were prophets in Israel during a time of great apostasy and spiritual weakness. And um, they were at the center, not coincidentally, of the greatest miracles, uh, the most spectacular acts of God uh, since the time of the Exodus. And the reason for this like spiritual intensity is that God was calling his people back to himself through Elijah, through Elisha. He was renewing his people. And I believe that uh, we are now in a similar period of decline and weakness in the American church. Uh, just this month, um, a new book was published called The Great Dechurching by uh, Jim Davis, Michael Graham. And uh, you know, a lot of pastors are talking about it. And it's very well researched. And uh, the book um, is very, uh, makes the case that we are right now in the middle of the largest the fastest uh, shift in the religious landscape in U.S. history. So that um, in the last two decades, about 12% of Americans or 25% of Christians have left the church. So that's a net 40 million people who used to be in the church are now no longer in the church. That is an enormous change. And I think we all feel it, right? that the church, especially coming out of the pandemic, has been greatly weakened, much diminished. Attendance is down, churches have been shut down. Um, And so there's this palpable sense of loss. And according to the book, uh, the reasons um, are are very complex, and there's two broad uh, reasons for this. Number one, weakness within. So all of the infighting, all of the scandals, it just seems like, Every week, there's a new podcast, new documentary, um, just talking about you know, scandals in the church, very discouraging. And then number two, opposition without. The culture has really shifted so that there's just much more skepticism and hostility to the church. And so it feels like, for the church, our best days are behind us. And we are now in this period, period of inevitable decline. But I want you to know that the lives of Elijah and Elijah tell us otherwise. Because their story is a story of hope. That when the night is darkest, the light shines the brightest. That God is not asleep, but he will bring the dawn of a new day. And uh, it really reminds me of that scene um, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh, I, I want you guys to know that uh, as we begin this new church, there's going to be a uh, frequent rotation of Lord of the Rings illustrations. But uh, there's this uh, scene in the second movie when Rohan's defenses are overwhelmed. You know, goblins and Urukai are swarming. The outer walls have been breached. Uh, they've been fighting through the night, and then now they're pushed back to the inner keep, and it seems like certain doom. And then in that moment, Aragorn sees 
a light in the window. And then he remembers Gandalf's words, look to my coming, first light of dawn. And then what you see is the white wizard and the riders of Rohan, they come over the hill and the, the, turn, the, the tide of the battle is turned and it's this really glorious, like, beautiful scene, right? I, I, I tear up when I see that scene in the movies. And I want you to know that's the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And so my goal for this sermon series is that you might take courage, that we are not abandoned, that God is at work even in this dark hour. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. He will renew our spirits. He will fill us with his presence. He will build up his church. He did it in the time of Elijah and Elisha. He will do it in our own time. He's done it through the history of the church. So with that in mind, let's read our text. So um, we're going to read the the very last part of uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, and then we're going to read the very first part of chapter 17. Um, This is page 4 in your bulletin. I'll read it for you. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And in verse 1 in chapter 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of God. So I have three points. This is the outline. Number one, We're going to look at um, Ahab. Um, Number two, we're going to look at this drought. And then number three, we're going to see that um, Elijah becomes an outcast. So first, number one, the threat of King Ahab. So the setting of the story is the reign of Ahab, son of Omri. And the reason this is significant is because Ahab was uniquely a threat to true religion in Israel. And the text goes out of its way to emphasize this. So in verse 30, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord 
more than all who were before him. Again, in verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were wicked, they were wayward, right? They all committed, you know, theft and murder, and they did all kinds of evil, right? None of them truly followed the Lord. But Ahab was the worst. He was the worst of the worst. And the reason is that unlike the other kings, who at least paid lip service to the God of Israel, they at least made a show of worshiping God. You know, although their worship was like mixed with pagan idolatry, they would combine, you know, pagan elements in their worship. But Ahab straight up worshiped pagan gods. And he openly defied and rejected the God of Israel. And you see this in verse 31. It says, he worshiped Baal. Uh, I'm sorry, he served Baal and worshiped him. And then in verse 32, it says, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Now, this word house is not talking about like an ordinary house that you live in. It's talking about a temple. And so what Ahab did was in Samaria, the capital city, he built this magnificent temple for Baal to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And then in verse 33, it says, he also worshipped Asherah, which is another pagan deity. And so this was a huge crisis. This was an existential crisis for Israel because Israel had never had an openly pagan king who was hostile to biblical faith. Israel never had a king who would systematically hunt down and kill the prophets of God, the servants of God, so that the religious faith of Israel was almost wiped out. It was on the brink of extinction. The the Jewish people were on the cusp of becoming a pagan nation. And at the root of this, this unprecedented wide-scale apostasy, at the root was a woman named Jezebel. In verse 31, it says, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. So who is Jezebel? If you are uh, familiar, um, you know that Jezebel is perhaps the most infamous the most uh, notorious figure in the Bible. She is a pagan worshiper, a foreign princess, who marries Ahab, um, almost certainly as part of a treaty with the Sidonians so that Israel could gain access to uh, the Sidonian trade networks. They were a a seafaring people. And the, the thing about Jezebel, if you read the rest of the story, is that you quickly realize that Jezebel is the real power behind the throne. Um, Ahab was mostly a passive figure. And it's Jezebel who's the true brains behind the operation. Uh, You see this particularly in chapter 21. We're going to get there in a few weeks. Uh, In chapter 21, Ahab takes Naboth's vineyard um, so that this innocent man, Naboth, uh, he was murdered for his land. 
But if you read the story, it's Jezebel who orchestrates the whole thing. She arranges for the false trial. She orders his execution. And then Ahab just sort of lets it happen, right? He's like, I don't even want to know <laughs> what, it, what you had to do. And he's just glad to, to take the land. So that the portrait of Ahab that emerges in the story is that Ahab's evil and apostasy is not so much part of this diabolical plan that he hatches on his own, but uh, you actually see that he has a a, a soft spot for God. Uh, Because at one point in the story, he, he actually repents. So that you see, he still believes. He still believes in the God of Israel. But because of Jezebel, because he is married to this ardent unbeliever, it sets the course of his life. And so what you see is that this decision to turn away from God was not some you know, dramatic moment later on in his life, you know, maybe like when he built the temple to Baal. But the fateful decision was on his wedding day when he married Jezebel. The Bible says that marriage is profoundly consequential for your life. Who you marry, the quality of your marriage, does not sit on the periphery of your life, but it goes to the very core of your life. Because the Bible says that marriage is one flesh. It's two people becoming one body, one flesh. It's a really profound thing. And you know, it happens organically, happens gradually over time, so that you merge into this single unit, into this single life. You know, imagine there are these two tree saplings, right? Imagine two, these two little tree saplings that are planted right next to each other. And then over time, they grow into each other. Their roots become intertwined, their branches crisscross, until it reaches a point that it looks as if it's a single tree. You can't tell when one ends and the other begins. And this is why divorce is so traumatic. Because how do you separate two trees? How do you untangle two lives? It would be like amputating a limb. And this is why the Bible says it is so important to marry a fellow believer. The Bible is unambiguously clear that you are to marry in the Lord. You are to marry a fellow Christian. Because if you marry... If you're a Christian and you marry an unbeliever, you are building deep heartache and sorrow into your life. Because you will be faced with this terrible choice in your marriage, either to grow close to God and therefore away from your spouse, or to grow close to your spouse and therefore away from, your sp- uh, away from God. But either way, your heart is split, your, your loyalties are divided, And virtually everyone I know who is a Christian, who is married to a non-Christian, has told me it is a great sorrow, if not the greatest sorrow of their life. And so, you know, sometimes the spouse converts. That is the grace of God. But you should not presume upon that. And I say all of this to spare you sorrow. Sorrow. 
and to encourage you that God, to encourage you that you cannot separate your faith from your marriage. God has so designed both that to strengthen one is to strengthen the other. And if they are aligned, there's this wonderful synergy in your life. So to summarize the first point, Ahab was the most wicked king in the history of Israel. But his wickedness was not an act of wickedness. It was passive through his marriage, through Jezebel, who led him away from God. And because he was the king, because he was the leader of God's people, it created this massive crisis in the land. So that leads me to my second point, which is we're going to look at the drought. And here I want to look at the problem of suffering. So in chapter 17, um, the prophet Elijah enters the story. And he announces that God will bring a drought upon the land. And when you read chapter 18, you find out that this is going to be a three, it's a three-year drought. So for three years, no rain will fall upon the land. No moisture, not even dew, uh, not even the morning dew. So this is a very severe drought. Now it's hard for us as modern people to appreciate this. You know, because in the modern world, we are greatly insulated, you know, because of technology, because of global trade, from the, uh, the effects of a drought. But in ancient Israel, you know, because they were an agricultural subsistence economy, no rain at all would mean the crops would fail. And when the crops fail, that means no harvest. And then no harvest means people would starve. Now, the first year this happens, it is somewhat survivable because there are reserves. But in the second year, and then the third year, would be devastating. And there would be famine conditions upon the land. And it's really hard for us as modern people to understand the scale of human suffering. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I read um, a really searing account of this in the New York Times. Um, Nicholas Kristof was uh, reporting on the famine in South Sudan. So what's happening in Sudan is that there's this multi-year drought. On top of that, there's a civil war. And so this has created a humanitarian catastrophe. And uh, Nicholas Kristof was uh, visiting a, a refugee camp. And while he was there, he said... This four-year-old boy named Abdul Saeed was brought into the camp by his mother. His mother had carried him for many days in her arms. And Nicholas Kristof says that this four-year-old boy was so emaciated, he was so starved that he weighed only 14 pounds, only little more than a baby. And he says that the really strange thing is that this four-year-old boy wasn't even crying. He didn't cry at all. He didn't make a single noise as he was brought into the hospital. And then this is what um, Nicholas Kristof writes in the article. Listen. That's because children who are starving don't cry or even frown. Instead, they are eerily calm. 
they appear apathetic, often expressionless. A body that is starving doesn't waste energy on tears. It directs every calorie to keep the major organs functioning. And Christoph, uh, in the article, says that um, that boy later died in the hospital. This is what happens uh, during a famine. And so the natural question, the natural question is why? Why would God do this? Is this an act of vengeance? Is he punishing the people? Why would he bring what is, what would be unimaginable suffering on the people? I think this is a relevant question. This is an important question. When we think about our own lives, you know, we may not be afflicted by famine or drought, but I know that so many of us in this room have gone through intense seasons of suffering and loss. So many of us in this room have been crushed by grief and pain. And it felt like God was just striking us down and we're lying on the floor, just immobilized with agony, and we are crying out, why? Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Now, I want you to know that the key to understanding the story is you need to see the identity of Baal and Asherah. And I want you to understand that the drought is not some random terrible thing that happens, but it is very much connected to the identity of these pagan gods. So the thing about... um, pagan idolatry is that the people would believe in many gods. There were many gods, and each god had a domain. Right? Each god was limited in power, but they had this sort of like specialized area of life that they could control. And then you would worship the god who could give you what you needed, what you most desired. And so I think in this way, pagan idolatry is quite astute and psychologically insightful. You know, as modern people, uh, when we see ancient pagans bowing down to idols, we think how primitive, um, how superstitious, and we feel sort of superior. But I want you to know that ancient pagans understood something that we modern people don't understand anymore, which is that everyone worships something. Everyone has something at the center of their life that is the non-negotiable that they can't lose because it gives them meaning and purpose and joy in their life. And the ancient world would say, whatever that thing is, that's your God. If you could be honest with yourself, if you could just admit it to yourself, you are worshiping that thing. And the ancient pagans just gave it a name. They personified it. And this is why there were many gods, because everyone worships something different. And so Baal, Baal is the Canaanite god of the storm. And um, in uh, engravings and in statues 
Um, he's often depicted holding a thunderbolt. Uh, he's a little bit like Thor, the uh, Norse god of thunder, right? He, would, uh, he, he, he had the power to bring rain upon the land. And then Asherah, she's the goddess of fertility. She had the power to give you children and families. And so you have rainfall and you have children. And in the ancient world, that was the foundation of all prosperity and wealth. And here's the thing. We know from um, Assyrian sources, we, um, the reigns of Omri and Ahab uh, are actually documented outside of the Bible. And we know that during their, during their reign, the land of Israel experienced its most prosperous period. There was a long stretch of unbroken harvests. They had opened up trade with the Sidonians. And so this enormous wealth was pouring into the land. And so this is a society that was at the height of economic prosperity and material wealth. And rather than see them as gifts from God, rather than worship the giver, they worship the gifts. And they would worship Baal and Asherah, and they built, they built uh, temples to these idols. And then in response, God ordains a three-year drought. Now, what is God doing? Is this some cruel payback? Or, you know, if God is not involved, you know, if he's sort of indifferent, uh, which is sort of like the modern view of things, then is this arbitrary, meaningless suffering? And the answer is no. Don't you see, through the drought, God is calling his people back to himself. Through the drought, he was showing them the emptiness and the futility of their idols. You see, idols aren't bad things. Having food to eat, building wealth, having children, having families. These are good things. And it's good to want them, it's good to pursue them. But if you make them the ultimate thing, if you put them at the center of your life, if you build your life on them, they will take you away from God. And God, in his great mercy, because he loves you, he will very gently, but very firmly, take away the good things in your life. He will remove them out of your hand so that your heart could be opened to the ultimate thing, which is himself. He's not punishing you. He's not afflicting you. But he wants to awaken your heart to his divine reality. I want to um, share with you the story of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata is a fairly well-known Christian writer. And um, she is a quadriplegic, which means that she is uh, confined to her wheelchair. Um, But it was not always so. And she tells the story that um, she had grown up uh, in a Christian uh, house, household. And uh, when she was 17 years old, she describes herself as athletic, you know, full of life and promise. She was bound for college. And then the summer before she went off to school, she went with her friends down to the beach. And she dived into some shallow water 
and her head hit the bottom, and there was this snap, and she broke her neck, and she was paralyzed from the neck down. And she says that um, the first several months in the hospital were really tough. She had to go through a series of very painful surgeries. And she says during that time in the hospital, she had this reoccurring vivid dream based on John chapter 5. John 5 is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. And in, the sto- uh, in her dream, she says she's lying on a mat by the pool. And then she sees Jesus walking by. And there's all of these crowds of sick and disabled people. And Jesus is touching them and, and healing them. And then Johnny Erickson Tata, she cries out. She says, Jesus, here I am. Don't forget me. I'm over here, Lord. I'm here. And then she would wake up. And she would realize that she's still paralyzed. And the tears would flow. And she didn't even have the the dignity to be able to wipe her own face. And she says that as the months went by, she became deeply angry and depressed. And she began to think very seriously suicidal thoughts. And she would say to herself, I can't live like this. To eat, breathe, and just exist? What kind of life is that? And so she says she felt this kind of intense claustrophobia, as if she were trapped in her own body. She she said she felt like a burden to her friends and family. And in the morning she would say, leave me alone. And they would turn off the lights, close the curtains, and she would just cry and cry in her room. Finally, Johnny Erickson Tata began to read the Bible again. She says, almost almost as if for the first time. And she says she was particularly interested in the question of suffering. Why would God allow for this? Is God even in control? And she says that um, a friend gave her a book, of all things, on the sovereignty of God. And so she said she was reading and reading and reading this book until finally she came to this realization that cut her to the heart, that the ultimate healing she needed was not her body, but for a sinful and prideful heart that does not need God. You see, all of her life, you know, there had been no sort of overt, weak, uh, overt wickedness in her life, but she had never known weakness. She had never really needed God. And then now suddenly she was profoundly weak and she had nowhere to turn but God so that you don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. And she says that was the key that opened this door to a lifetime of spiritual life and growth. Johnny Erickson Tata is now 73 years old. And for the last 50 years, she's been a Christian writer and speaker. She's dedicated her life to helping people with disabilities. And she says what she thought was an 
absolute disaster ended up being the greatest gift in her life because through it she learned the secret of contentment and fellowship with God. And she says this. She says she would have never experienced this deep intimacy with God if it were not for that accident. And she would not trade that for all the walking in the world. Why does God allow tragedies and sufferings into your life? Sometimes God takes away the good things in your life. And they're good things so that your hearts could be open to the ultimate thing, which is God himself. And sometimes, oftentimes, it takes intense suffering to awaken us. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And so can we hear the voice of God in our suffering? Can we see the divine purpose in our sorrows? That leads me to the final point, which is Elijah becomes an outcast. So this is very curious. Elijah is called as a prophet by God, and he faithfully delivers God's word to Ahab. But then, immediately after, he has to hide away in some remote place by some obscure brook. We don't even know where it is on the map, somewhere east of the Jordan. And it's curious because why does Elijah have to hide? If he's serving God, right? If this is from God, shouldn't things go easier for him? Shouldn't God protect him? Why does he have to live like a fugitive? Why does he have to become an outcast? And the answer is that becoming an outcast is part of the job. The job of a prophet is to speak the truth of God to a wayward people, is to confront them of their corruption and, and complicity. And the people are not going to appreciate that you're pointing out their sins and idols. And so the prophets are hated and scorned and persecuted. And some of you are saying, thank God I'm not a prophet. (laughs) Maybe that's true for pastors or missionaries, but not for me. And I will say to you, not so fast. Because if you look at Jesus' final beatitude, right? The beatitudes is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about the, the Christian life. And so he goes through all of these blessings, right? Blessed are the peacemaker, blessed are the meek. And then listen to his final blessing. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted 
the prophets who were before you. I want you to notice that Jesus here widens the scope and he very directly connects the life of a believer to the life of a prophet. And what he's saying is that if you are faithful to me, if you speak the truth in love, then you will experience something of what the prophets experienced. Now this is very tough. You know, modern culture is incredibly shallow. We live in a world full of distraction and entertainment and busyness, right? We live in a world that is just like obsessed with success. And this is why, you know, the thought of of that kind of rejection that Jesus speaks of, that fills us with horror and revulsion, and we do everything we can to avoid it, But what Jesus is saying is that you cannot follow me and avoid suffering. If you follow him, if you speak about him, you will be misunderstood. You will experience heartache and grief. And sometimes you will be rejected. And what makes the rejection all the more searing is that you're not going to be rejected by strangers because that doesn't matter. You will be rejected by the people you love, by family and friends. I want you to notice that Elijah was not rejected by pagan foreigners. He was rejected by Israel, by his own people. I want you to know this is the cost of discipleship and I want to prepare you for this that you will face trials of many kinds in this life if you follow Jesus. But I want you to know that when you do, God will sustain you. Did you notice the ravens in the story? Some of you are wondering, what's the deal with the ravens? The ravens is God's miraculous provision for Elijah. The ravens bring Elijah food. But what's really interesting is that they don't bring a lot of food. They don't bring a a, a feast for Elijah. You know what they bring? Just daily bread. Just daily sustenance. If you follow Christ, you will have many troubles, but you will also experience in a very direct way the daily sustenance of God. Finally, I want you to know that the story points beyond itself. I want you to know that Elijah's ministry is a precursor to Jesus' ministry. And this is made explicit in the New Testament. In um, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth. This is the beginning of his ministry. You know, he gives his inaugural sermon, right? He opens up the scroll in Isaiah. And at the end of the sermon, the townspeople are grumbling. Because Jesus sounds like he's claiming to be the Messiah. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? And they're filled with indignation. And in response, Jesus is very interesting. He explicitly cites the ministry of Elijah. He talks about the famine and the drought. 
He talks about the widow of Zarephath and her miraculous provision. That's the next story, right? We're, we're going to get to that in the next sermon. And then he says this, listen. Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. What he's saying is that God's prophets are always rejected and they're always despised by their own people and therefore you're doing it right now. You're fulfilling my very words. You're proving that I am a prophet and then do you know what the people do? They're so angry by this. They take Jesus to the edge of a cliff so that they could throw him off it They try to kill him, but the text says he slips away because it was not yet his time. I want you to know that rejection is not some strange aberration in gospel ministry. It is the norm. It happened to the prophets. This was the uh, the pattern, again, for the apostles. And It will happen to you. And when it happens, I want you to know that you are ultimately, just like the prophets, just like the apostles, you're ultimately pointing to the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. And as one from whom men hide their faces, we esteem them not. I want you to know that Jesus is the true and ultimate prophet who came to call us back to God. And he brought us back to God. He reconciled us to the Father. I want you to know through his rejection because his rejection took him to the cross. And when you see that he was rejected for you and that he suffered for you that you might be safe in his arms, then your own experience of rejection, your own seasons of sorrow and suffering will be bearable. They won't destroy you. They will only build you up. The Bible says something really strange The Bible says that if you are a follower of Christ, you experience a fellowship in your suffering because Jesus suffered for you. And then when you suffer for him, you are united to him in a very deep and profound way. There's so much more to that and we're going to talk about it in the coming sermons. But that's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the suffering and rejection of Christ on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. Help us to see the meaning and the purpose behind our own seasons of suffering and loss, that you have not abandoned us but you love us and you're calling us back to yourself. We pray even now in this season of um, 
decline and retreat in the church. You would revive your people. You would build up your church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.